Welcome to episode 199 of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, just one episode away from number 200. So in celebration of that, I thought we'd take a look back at some of the best episodes of this podcast as voted on by you, the listeners. So coming up on today's show, we'll be looking at the top 10 episodes of the Derek Diamond Experience. Derek, Derek, Derek. Diamond, 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 Diamond. Experience! You know, it's crazy to think as I sit here in front of this microphone, thinking about what I want to say for this podcast, to sum up 200 episodes of podcasting. And to be honest, I don't really know what to say. You know, I've done several takes here. You know, I'm sitting here um, at work wrapping up and, you know, trying to get this intro done. It's hard to sum up something that I never thought I would have the opportunity to do. Going back to 2013, starting the Nerd Cave podcast and thinking that, you know, here years later, I'd be doing my own show. I'd be doing a retro gaming show. And as far as this show goes, if you had told me that I would get to meet some of the people that I've had the pleasure of meeting, you know, some have been childhood idols of mine. I used to watch their work growing up. Uh, I would have told you you were crazy. And even with doing the fun roundtable shows with friends, you know, those have been, you know, I've gotten to know friends better through doing this podcast. So I owe a lot to it. And it's interesting because I didn't think I'd be, you know, pouring my heart out uh, doing the intro. But something I wanted to do uh, for episode 199, um, I wanted to kind of take a look back at some of the best episodes or as you have voted, the listeners have voted as the best episodes of this podcast. You know, I wanted to, I knew I was going to do the roast for 200, but I also wanted to kind of take a look back and see the progression of the show and where it came from and what it's turned into now. So I've been posting polls on Facebook the last several weeks and thank you to everyone uh, who voted And I've compiled the list of the top 10 best episodes of the Derek Diamond Experience. And starting off at number 10 is the very first episode that I ever did for this show. And it's kind of fitting because I'm actually sitting in the same room recording these intros uh, with the Unicorn Wranglers. Uh, They've been, you know, very good friends of mine since really I started doing this podcast. You know, I've met Adam through working with him since 2013. I've had the pleasure of getting to know his family and other friends that, you know, he's had that I became friends with. And it's interesting because I've always felt like their band has always been tied into this podcast. Because if you go to iTunes and you search for the Unicorn Wranglers, you see the Derek Diamond Experience as well. If you type in the Derek Diamond Experience, you'll also see the Unicorn Wranglers. So we've all been kind of intertwined in our own way. And I will say the audio quality for this is not great. And even though they were two friends of mine, I was still a little nervous because I had never really conducted a full hour long interview before. So hopefully you guys have fun going back and listening to this. Uh, Basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a few minute clips from each episode uh, going from 10 to one. 
So coming in at number 10 is the very first episode I ever did with the Unicorn Wranglers. I'm now joined along with my very first guests on my new show. I have two of the three members of the local indie band, the Unicorn Wranglers. Guys, why don't you introduce yourselves? Hey, my name's Adam Waldron. I'm the bassist and lead vocalist for the Unicorn Wranglers. And I'm Ian Waldron, and I play guitar. How's it going, guys? Good. Going pretty good. How are you doing? Not too bad. I just want to say I'm really excited to be here on the Derek Diamond experience, because it really is an experience. (laughs) And to be the first one to have that experience, you can't match that experience. No. You know, we have a week. We get a week's worth of uh, a badge of courage. Yeah. Saying that <laughs> like we, a merit yeah, badge. Yeah, no one else has experienced the Derek Diamond for at least a w- another week. That's true. True. Yeah. Have you guys always been the Unicorn Wranglers, or has there been like any kind of different incarnations of your band and what it's become? <laughs> well, we started off as an NSYNC cover band. Oh, uh, wow. That's what yeah. we were going to yeah. be. And it was going to just be a two-piece uh, we were because that was really all in sync was. Nobody wants to admit it, but it <laughs> yeah. was Justin Timberlake and JC whatever his name was. And so that's what we were gonna do because I have, you know I was gonna just dye my hair blonde and be you know Justin Timberlake. <laughs> and, um, you have the curls. For I have it. the curls for it. Um, but no, like it. Uh, yeah, there's there's been different uh, variations of it. You know, um, you know we we we've we've made uh, you know two records. Um, you know Adam and I've played on all of them. Um, you know, obviously with the first record, it was called Monoceros. We had our buddy Cole, you can just came and sung on it. Um, our buddy Hunter Eubanks played drums on it. Um, and then we, we, we made that record, which is a record I'm, I'm pretty proud of. I mean, you know, it wasn't necessarily the greatest thing to music known to man, but... But it's your first record. Right, it was our first record. I mean, you know, I had been playing guitar for literally like three months at that time. Go back and look at a lot of bands' first records. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can go back and listen to like a Chili Peppers, their first record. It's not even worth listening to. And, um... But um, there's, but it, a, there's a few. Ones. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's like anything. It's <laughs> it's a launching point. You're yeah. like, okay, I can see where they're going. Let's see if they can get there. Um, and then on the second record, ninety five flannel, um, we 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 you know our buddy Cole was just kind of like, I, I, you know, I don't know if I really want to do this. We started to get a little bit more, not not serious, but we started to have you know kind of you know things started to pop up. You know, people wanted us to maybe play some shows and stuff like that, and just something he wasn't real comfortable with, and. Um, and then, um, so Adam took over vocals on that whole record on 95 Flannel. And that, that really kind of pushed us into a new um, level of commitment to it, if you will. And, uh, and then, you know, our buddy Hunter is very busy. He's a very talented musician, plays with all these different he's bands. He's a musician. And, um, and so he's, he's playing guitar, I think, for seven other bands and stuff like that. And so... We uh, we knew a guy, um, our, one of our best friends, his cousin, uh, Brendan uh, Karnick, is now uh, in the band. He's our drummer now. And so he's been playing with us the last six, seven months. And uh, we're, we're very excited. We love him. He's a giant teddy bear. Great yeah. time. He's a giant yeah, teddy bear. Yeah, he's awesome. So, uh, so yeah, so, so we're, we're, there's been some lineup changes, if you will. But at, at its core, it's always been me and Adam. And I think it will, you know... If anything ever comes and goes, it will, it will always be. And it, yeah, and it's it's pretty much always been the Unicorn Wranglers too. There's been a couple names thrown around, but but the Unicorn Wranglers kind of was the one that so stuck. How did you guys come up with that name? Ah, uh, well, a part of part of my degree seeking uh, 
journey at the University of West Florida involved uh, some some short filmmaking, which I'm sure you're just as well versed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe this was a, a script. No, it was yeah, well that we wanted yeah. to make, but we didn't make. Yeah, it was an wanted. idea. Yeah, it was we, an idea, yeah. and it was going to be this idea of these these guys that take Twister. Yep, take Twister. Take Twister, a great movie. It was a 1996. Six, 1996. 1996, Bill Paxton, uh, the the late and, and, and great uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt. Um, and and uh, take that, but put it in with this group of people that that are trying to catch these unicorns that are loose. And <laughs> and that that was there. and it, and it was going to be a, a, a serious drama. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, we were we it, we had some serious twists, plot twists. Yeah, um, it it was it was ready to go, but it just never it it's in a pile with about seventy five other really weird kind of potentially great but potentially horrible, more yeah. like sci fi movie. I was about right. to say they were yeah. they were going to be right there up there with 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 the great Sharknado, Sharknado, Sharknado um, Two, Sharknado which is coming out later yeah, this year. Sharknado right, yeah. right. Can't we'll wait. Give a little plug yeah. there for sci fi. Yeah, and, uh, buy our script. Yeah, buy the Unicorn Wrangler script. Yeah. So, coming in at number nine is the most recent episode or episodes on this list: The Legend of Zelda Roundtable episodes one eighty eight and one eighty nine. Ever since I implemented the roundtable element into this podcast, I knew one subject I wanted to cover was The Legend of Zelda. It's been my favorite video game series for as long as I can remember. I've discussed on this show. You know, the vivid memories I have of playing these games as a kid and even into adulthood. It's been one of the few that and Star Wars have been kind of the things I've consistently brought with me through my life. So I knew I wanted to talk about Zelda on this podcast and I found the two right people to do it. Uh, The first person is Jason Robbins. He is also my co-host on the Nerd Cave Retro Show. And the other is someone who I've had the pleasure of getting to know uh, over these last two years. Chris Garagiola, who is a broadcaster with the Blue Wahoos. Uh, Talking with him, us being a huge fan of retro games, I knew he'd be a perfect fit and a natural for this episode. So coming in at number nine is The Legend of Zelda Roundtable. So I wanted to start off by asking both of you, what's your first memory of just the Zelda franchise in general, whether it's, you know, seeing a commercial, a poster... Uh, playing one of the games, what what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Zelda? I'll let Chris go first. Oh, man. Wow. Okay. Um, well, mine's actually a little different because I, and, and Derek knows this a little bit, I was actually sort of born into the gaming universe under the the Mario family. And so I, like, at the, I think, age four or five, I, my sister had a Super Nintendo and I played Super Mario Kart and Super Mario World, and I never had any interest in Zelda. And then I got, you know, flash forward all the way towards the end of high school, I got a Wii, and they had the virtual console. And I just remember my oldest sister in passing said something like, yeah, well, Ocarina of Time, that Zelda game is supposed to be like, I don't know, one of her friends said it was supposed to be like one of the greatest games ever. And I was like, all right, like, whatever, let's, let's give it a look. And I had vaguely remember seeing someone play when they were in the Kokiri Forest or, you know, on that N64 sort of blockish graphics, but didn't think anything of it. And then 
Gosh, I remember playing it just all the way through. I mean, getting past the devilish water temple and and the entire thing. And that was the first game, and you're talking at age, I think, 17, where I wished more than anything I could play Ocarina of Time again for the first time. Like, it was just such a wonderfully composed game and kind of a perfect balance of story and challenge. Uh, my first, <clears throat> let's see, the first time I ever experienced Zelda was, I think it was, it had to be uh, around 1987, so I was about 10 years old. I had a neighbor that lived down the street. Uh, this, the, um, these two brothers lived down the street from me. One was a, a kid named Brian who was my age, and then he had an older brother that was about two or three years older named Patrick. And I went over there one day and he was playing Legend of Zelda. And I had never experienced anything like that before. Like I, I didn't even have a Nintendo at the time. You know, I would just go over to my friends' houses and we would play things like Kung Fu and uh, Rad Racer, Super Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt, things like that. But when I saw Legend him playing Legend of Zelda, I was just like, what is this? And I, I must have sat and watched him play it for days like i would just go over there and just watch him play that game zelda reaches a broader demographic i think of gamers if you will in the sense that it offers a few more challenges and i think it involves a little bit more critical thinking and if you look at again the, the snes for me is sort of my reference point here but you look at like super mario world and a link to the past they both had kind of an interesting story, if you will, and they both were on the same sort of difficulty level where younger kids could still beat it, but the additional things to do were extremely challenging and it offered like a lot of thought and there would be a lot of trial and error. And I feel like as the years went on, the Mario franchise sort of branched more towards being a lot more graphically pleasing, uh, a storyline that sort of was geared a little bit towards that younger audience, um, more, I don't want to say family-friendly, because it's not like Zelda's not family-friendly, but it, it felt like more of a younger kids game. And that Zelda franchise, while you can still sort of be, you know, in that 8, 9, 10 years old range and start playing, I think it's aged very well for people who are in their late teens, early 20s, 30s as well, who still like that challenge. Um, and I feel like having played a little bit of Super Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild, those are the perfect sort of comparisons because Odyssey still feels like it's made for someone a little bit younger. Sometimes the levels are a little too simple, um, but the Easter eggs in there are supposed to be the, the balancing point for an older gamer, whereas Breath of the Wild really didn't have to add anything. They just the whole storyline um, sort of meets those challenging criteria, which make it both so fun and so frustrating. Coming in at number eight is an interview that I was really excited to do from the minute that I got the confirmation for it because he is the voice of one of my favorite cartoon characters, Rocco from Rocco's Modern Life. I was a huge Nicktoons fan growing up and Rocco's Modern Life was always my favorite of all the, the great shows that they had at that time. I don't know if it was the bright, colorful wackiness that was that show, but I was instantly drawn to it. And when this person was announced for Pensacon, uh, I knew I had to try and get an interview with this person, and they were so gracious enough to do it. And what's funny is that uh, when we actually met in person, he remembered me. We had really good conversation. We actually ran into each other several times throughout that entire weekend. So 
uh, th- it's a favorite, you know, personal one of mine because of the additional memories attached to it. But coming in at number eight from episode 128 is Carlos Alizaraki. I was looking at your website, and uh, you actually do some stand-up comedy. Now, yeah. That's... Now, how did you get into that? I got into that um, through college. I was just you know doing my recreation administration major over there. I thought I would work in health clubs or ski resorts and things like that. And I got into some, I got into some mime, and then I got into some stand-up comedy through that. Um, that was in 1985, 86. And then I formed a duo with another buddy. We were called the Brouhaha. And we used to p- perform at this place called the uh, Metro Bar and Grill, which was on 12th and K in Sacramento, an underground club. It was really cool. And so I, I guess just kind of fell into it through college. And then in 87, I moved to San Francisco and worked at a couple different health clubs during the day and did stand-up comedy at night. And next thing I know, I was going on the road and I became a full-time comic. And I did notice yeah. that you won a uh, San Francisco comedy competition uh, in '93. Yeah. What what exactly even... what exactly went into that was just just like the a collection of comics get together and people vote yeah, on the funniest I one. It, I think they started with forty. Um, it may have been more comics than forty, and then you make it through the preliminary rounds and you perform at different clubs, and then you have judges. And then hopefully you make it to the top 20 and then the top 10, the semifinals, and then you make it to the finals. And Pat Oswald and Mark Marin were in the finals. The guy, Richard Kearns and Stephen B. And myself and Pat Oswald and Mark Marin were the top five at the, the Masonic Temple, actually, the Masonic Temple downtown. That's where we had our the final night. I, I guess I made it all the way. you know. And then after that, I remember the next morning, back in the days when you had an answering machine, there was all these managers that called from L.A. And this was the... This was the big ticket. I was flavor of the month for sure. And uh, that was 1993. And so I moved shortly after that because uh, I had gotten Rocco's Modern Life as well. So with those two calling cards, I said, hey, man, I'm I'm uh, loading up the truck and moving to Beverly. You know, I'm doing the clamping thing. I'm getting out of here. You said you got the job as Rocco on Rocco's Modern Life. How was your time doing that show? I had a blast. I, I always, you know, that'll always be my first cartoon. You know, you can't take that away. So, yeah, I, I loved it. I remember it was Poolside Studios in San Francisco on Steiner and Lombard behind Mel's Diner. There was a little studio. Joe Murray uh, had this little project, and I auditioned with Nick Jennings, who, who now is running Powerpuff Girls, and George Maestri, and I got Rocco, and I, I just said, Coffee State is a very dangerous day. And, um, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that it was fun. I'm like, oh, wow, this could be cool. And we did the pilot, and I was on the road in Seattle at one of the comedy clubs. I think it was called The Last Lap in, in Seattle. And I remember getting the call that Rocco was going to go to series, and I just thought, wow, I've made it. This is it. This is I, I, get, I get to get off the road. No more traveling. It's a comic. I love it. But, yeah, it's uh, it was great. I, I Rocco's my favorite. He's just so sweet and subtle, so... I had a blast. It was all brand new, and uh, I, I would, yeah, I, I loved it. Coming in at number seven, going from talking about things that we love to talking about things that we hate. Uh, this was one of the more fun live roundtables that I have done on my show. Um, a few of us at work were talking, and you know, everyone likes to talk about things they don't like, pet peeves, and things like that. So we thought. Why not make it a podcast? So uh, turned out to be really fun, really interactive. 
Coming in at number seven from episode 161, The Haters Club Roundtable. Why don't we start with Jamie? Because you, you've listed quite a few things. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, <laughs> I hate people with stage fright. Um, I would guess, so, you know, there's the obvious things like the slow walkers and things like that that we I think we all can agree on. Yeah. There's one for me that uh, I think this relates to dating. Mm. So we'll get right in there. And the one that gets me is chipped fingernail polish. Chipped fingernail polish drives me absolutely crazy. Leave. It grosses really? me out. Like physically, <laughs> I have to leave the room. Like and any girl I've ever dated will tell you, yes, this is absolutely true. They'll send me. Yeah. I've gotten pictures from ex-girlfriends with chipped fingernail polish. Just I so. chipped my nails at graduation, and he, I would like wave it in his face. Gotta go. Just to stress him out <laughs> when I got just back. Not appealing whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's just like this, like kind of white trash. Just I don't know. It just makes me wonder about your, you know, your life. Were they by chance Crimson Tide fans? I probably were, yeah. Roll Tide. So. Roll Tide. <laughs> can, we, can we get and Alabama on that yeah. shirt? <laughs> All right. Well, so this one's actually one that I've spent like hundreds of dollars like trying to solve. And I'm like thankful that I haven't had to use it lately. But airplane talkers. Like, and I get irrationally angry at people talking to me on an airplane for no reason. Like, I don't know why I get angry about it, but for whatever reason, I hate being on an airplane. It has nothing to do with like being in the air. Like they want to charge you for everything. You're herded in like cattle, but so yeah, I just hate flying in general. Yeah. But so then you get some little old lady flying to Kansas that wants to talk about her son that didn't quite make it into the military, but she always wanted a son that was in the military, and I had a nice haircut that looked like a kid that should be in the military. I hate it. I can't stand it. Just leave me alone. So like I, the first thing I did was I was like, yeah, noise-canceling earbuds, right? So you put the earbuds in, no big deal. No, that doesn't stop them. They sit there and still they'll tap your shoulder and they'll talk to you. So the next thing I did was go out and buy like the most massive pair of Beats by Dre that I could get. Still didn't stop it. So finally, and this is a terrible, terrible thing, but I've started just openly like finding the most either disgusting pictures or pornographic material to have on my phone <laughs> and just openly just be like, oh yeah. All right. If somebody tries to talk to me. Seriously, I hate it so bad. Like, I just, like, seriously, like, when I see people get in fights on airplanes, like, all those news <laughs> stories, it. I get it. It's because some old, little old lady flying to Kansas goes, ah, you look like you're in the Navy. No, I'm not. <laughs> Leave me alone, old lady. Jesus. My number one pet peeve, it literally makes me itch with anxiety, is loud eaters. I can't do it. I've been known to scream at you in a restaurant, on an airplane, wherever you may be. If you're e eating loudly in my ear, it's, it's just not a good day for me my or sister, you my sister used to yell at me when i was a kid because i would slurp when i would eat oh, i'm allowed I'm so like, wrong. what am i doing wrong i'm a loud drinker like i i, I gulp yeah. It's, yeah awesome mm, no i dated a girl who was like that and i'm pretty sure that's the reason we aren't dating anymore i broke up with mm -hmm. girls for chipped fingernail polish so I, i'm yeah. with you yeah yeah no deal breaker oh. chipped fingernail polish and loud well eating. it just never changed i was like dropping hints and it never yeah so it's like all right Check you later. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, see you around. Yeah. Whatever happened to that guy, Jamie? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I was at Florida State at the time, so it wasn't... Yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying there might have been a lady or two at Florida State? Just a few. <laughs> Only a few? Just a few. 
Well, <laughs> fu- funny to elaborate because we were at lunch when you had mentioned that whole story, and I was like in the middle of biting my sandwich, <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> just letting it like. I really appreciate mouth. that. And now because I'm self-conscious when I eat. Good. You should be. She's changing the world, guys. One loud eater at a time. Exactly. Coming in at number six, this is a personal favorite of mine, just because I was such a huge fan of this movie growing up. And uh, similar to the Carlos Alizaraki interview, uh, when I found out this person was coming to Pensacon, it was one I knew I had to try and get. And it took, you know, a few months of communication and things like that, but... Everything worked out, and it was one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. From episode 93 is Miss Claudia Wells. You may know her as the original Jennifer Parker from Back to the Future. Here with my very special guest this week, you may know her as Jennifer Parker from the original Back to the Future. I have Miss Claudia Wells on the line. Miss Wells, how's it going? Absolutely wonderful. How are you? Thank you for having me. What was it that originally made you want to get into acting? I have wanted to be an actress since I can remember. Literally, when I was a toddler and I was watching Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, I knew I wanted to be on television and acting. I just have always, I was born knowing my career choice. And in school, when I was a little girl, I used to look at my friends and think it was odd that they all didn't know their whole life already. Like they didn't all have a plan because I had a plan. (laughs) So everything I did as a child was in preparation for my plan of acting in terms of I was at ACT for two years uh, in San Francisco when I was eight. Um, I I sang and did principal children's roles in 10 operas at the San Francisco Grand Opera House from the age of eight to 12. Talked my mom into moving from San Francisco to Los Angeles um, after I finished high school. So no, 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 excuse me, after I finished elementary school so I could uh, do more acting. Um, so I moved to L.A. when I was just shy of 14 years old. And it's just, it was it's always been a passion and a dream and a way for me to express myself and be different people or different aspects of myself and get away with it. How did you get the role on uh, Back to the Future? Well, um, it was interesting because I had... You know, I'd already starred in six television series and several movies of the week and school break specials and a bunch. I probably did over 50 television jobs at that point. And I auditioned for an Amblin movie called Young Sherlock Holmes. And it got down to me. And I don't know whether it was one or two other girls. And I did not get it. Then I auditioned at Amblin again for Gremlins. And it got down to me and one or two other girls. Again, I didn't get it. Same story, same company, almost got the lead in Goonies. It got down to me and one or two other girls. Didn't get it. So when my agent called me and said Amblin wanted me to come in and read for another role in another movie, I wasn't even nervous because they had not cast me so many times. It was like I knew there was no pressure on me. So I went in and my only audition at Amblin was with Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale and the casting people and um, Kathleen Kennedy and, you know, all the producers, Neil Canton. Um, and I was in there for like two and a half hours doing the scene. My audition scene was the scene that Leah Thompson does in the car um, at the dance with when she's drinking and smoking with mm-hmm. Marty. 
that was, and I had no idea really what I was even auditioning for because I wasn't allowed to read the script. And the guy I auditioned with, it was his 11th callback for Marty. And he ended up getting the part of the drummer in, in the band scene. Oh, okay. And I just had so much fun. We, we read the scene a million times and, and um, Stephen wanted us to just do it kind of in different ways. And then uh, most of, a lot of the time, Steven Spielberg was just talking to me and asking me questions. And um, at the beginning, he kicked out the cameraman because um, the whole thing was being filmed and said, I just can't be in a room with someone else behind the camera. So he kicked him out and then he was behind the camera and he was asking me all of these questions. And I said, I'll tell you, but you can't tell my mom. And so he said, OK, I won't tell your mom. Um, I was innocent and I was I was just very innocent at the time. And then at the end, he goes, oh, oops, I didn't realize the whole thing was being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if they still have that in one of the archives, that audition scene, cause, or, or two hours on film. Um, and then I got the part. It was just that simple. Then after I got the part, it turned out that a pilot I had done the previous spring called Off the Rack with Ed Asner and Eileen Brennan and Dennis Haysbert. Um, for ABC, it got picked up to be a series, which the series uh, filming time was supposed to be the same time as my role in Back to the Future. And because I, it was my first contractual obligation, I had to commit and, and I couldn't back out. They would not allow me to be shared with Amblin, um, even though we tried. So I actually had to forfeit my part as Jennifer and they recast it then I did the seven um or eight shows of off the rack it was all it was fun it was Friday nights in front of a live audience uh and that was during the filming with Eric Stoltz for Back to the Future and then he was let go I was available Marty Michael was hired the girl they replaced me with um, when I was unavailable, was let go. I was rehired, and I got to do my part. Coming in at number five, I mentioned the Unicorn Wranglers before being on my very first episode. Well, a few months later, they came back on the show uh, during the middle of producing their album, Murder Mystery Night. Uh, this episode featured exclusive snippets from their recording, as well as a brand new interview that I did with Adam Ian, their drummer at the time, Brendan Karnick, and Mr. Travis Huffman, who is one of our more uh, lively friends. Uh, this was, and you're actually going to get to hear the snippet. He tells a story, a true story that happened that same day um, at a local CC's Pizza establishment that I can't really sum up other than you have to hear it yourself. So uh, coming in at number five, episode 21, The Unicorn Wranglers Return. Which I have a beef with you, sir, because you challenged me to a, a pizza Look, off at it, CC's. And it which, ended in a tie. It, did it end ended in a tie. In a tie. 14 which means slices. That no one won. Yeah. But I think we both lost, actually. Yeah. Because I think we're both still, like, three hours later, I think we're still feeling. The we're driving the struggle it. bus. Right. Sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. We haven't stopped yet either. CC's won, though, after all. Not, not because you, know, you guys the, That's before, a very good point. But the economics of that place are amazing. That's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, that Those is. slices probably cost 15 cents, possibly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so they didn't really lose much. I, money I won't disagree with that. Well, yeah. you try to get your five seventy nine, you know, yeah. worth, so Godspeed. Yeah. I think we all did that. Yeah. yeah. No, we did. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the salad was great. <laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> Pretty mad I ate that salad. Blessed right. <laughs> stomach space on some salad. And you mean- <laughs> That's an awful idea. Like a loser. <laughs> today, I've actually pretty much been hung up on that fact. I felt like a failure most of today. But I'm also joined with two other people. We have the drummer, Brendan Carnick. Brendan, how you doing? I'm doing very well. I did not eat my weight in pizza, so I'm doing pretty <laughs> well, good. <laughs> You're the lucky one. Uh, and I'm the tool bag with the sunglasses on here. So I'm going to go ahead and take those off. I'm Travis. Travis, how you doing? I'm pretty good because I did have that salad, so filled up a little bit of space. So you, you were the smart I, one. Yeah, well, I still enjoy some pizza, though, quite a bit. Yeah. You finally got that bacon cheddar pizza yeah. after what seemed cool. like half an hour. It pretty much you were was. gone for a long time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Quick so little what, side t- note on Tell that. everybody why you were gone for so Leads long. Leads me to the uh, entertaining uh, bathroom session that occurred. Uh, I know that, always a that can go in a lot of directions, but <laughs> I was the innocent one here. I was very, very innocent. I was simply biding my time to enjoy the stall, and a uh, father was standing outside while his young chap was inside having a blast. And by blast, I mean a struggle on the toilet. And by struggle on the toilet, I mean I, he was taking his clothes off and whatnot. No, did I not see this incident, but I heard all of it from the, right in the other store. You have to put that disclaimer. Yes, in. I did see not it. see this incident. That's I did important. not see it, but the dad did confirm by standing outside and simply saying, Son, you don't have to take your clothes off to use the toilet. It's a public facility. We're not at home. You can't get ass naked here, boy. The kid uttered a few things like, Dad, uh, Dad, leave me alone. I don't know what he said, whatever. But apparently then he said on the floor because then the dad proceeded to say, Son, get your ass off the floor. It's dirty down there. People piss down there. Further, he went on to explain, not only do they piss on there, but that that pissing occurs either by accident or on purpose. And I, at that point in my stall, was very relieved to know that it could be an accident, not always on purpose. Hopefully so. Exactly. So I I was okay with that notion. Uh, But it was a simple disclaimer he was laying out there for his son and fellow bathroom goers such as myself. So I didn't sit on the floor or get ass naked in my stall. But, Which is also a good disclaimer. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's good. So that's I, good. I, was, I was cool, but this kid apparently was not. His dad let me know that, so we're all good. But apparently he didn't do a good job of teaching his son bathroom etiquette. No. They left without further incidents, so I guess we're okay. <laughs> I got my bacon cheeseburger, so I'm all good. Number four, this might be the most publicized interview that I've ever gotten on this show because after the interview happened and I released the episode, I specifically remember sending it to said person and they said, okay, I'll post it on my Facebook uh, here in just a few minutes. So they post it, you know, probably five to 10 minutes later. And I used to be really bad at this. I don't do it as much anymore, but I would constantly check to see how many downloads my show would get. And I remember I had the day off from work that day and I'm just watching the numbers climb and climb and climb. And it absolutely blew my mind uh, when this happened because it was a first for me. You know, I, I didn't I wasn't used to having shows be that popular that quickly. 
and actually, you know, really getting compliments on the show and the fact that I was able to get this person was really cool. And one of the nicest guests I've ever had on the podcast and uh, watching the Power Rangers growing up, you know, this was this was kind of a dream get for me. So coming in at number four from episode 132, Jason David Frank, also known as Tommy Oliver from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. First of all, I'd like to say thank you for, for taking the time to do this. Oh, of course, man. And likewise, thank you for taking the time and, you know, doing this because without people doing interviews or podcasts, things like that, I, I wouldn't be able to reach as many fans around the world. So uh, you get uh, much, uh, much credit and kudos for doing the same thing. So I appreciate it. Oh, it's no problem at all. Now, I wanted to start off uh, by asking you a little bit about yourself personally. Like, where where did you where did you grow up, and like, what were some of your interests? Like, I know you've been into to martial arts for a long time. Is that something that you got into as a kid? Yes. Yep. Um, well, I grew up in a in a town called West Covina in California, and um, man, I, I tell you, I, I always loved. I would say being an actor, or you know, I would say acting up. Um, I was down, Night Rider used to be one of my favorite shows, and there was a flower shop that uh, down the street from me, and I, I saw them filming an episode of, uh, you know, Night Rider, and I saw the cameras, and I saw everything. I was really young at that time, and I was like, man, this is something I would love to do. I don't know what, but I was always attracted to the camera, not for fame, but just I just loved it, you know? I'm sitting here with my niece now, and we're just going through videos and editing and all that stuff, and we like the same stuff, you know? Um, and, uh, it's great. So I, I started, you know, looking at, uh, you know, looking at the filming and thinking, man, this would be something I could really get into, which would be cool. Um, and then all of a sudden I, uh, started, uh, doing, doing martial arts and, you know, loved it. It was one of my interests that I loved to do. I started at the age of four and, um, it just grew from there, uh, you know, and who knew I was a superhero by the time I was 18, you know, <laughs> so Acting has always been something I was involved in. Uh, it was just, you know, doing the, doing if it was modeling or doing whatever else. It was, it was just great to do. Kind of going back to to your character on the Power Rangers. Your character started as being evil because everyone, you know, whether they admit it, you know, in public or not, everybody has that little bit of a dark side. And then seeing yeah, kind we of all the, have our dark side. Yes. <laughs> you hit it right on the nail. We all have a dark side. And then seeing the the redemption story, it was you yeah. know it was one of the more uh, fascinating stories uh, on that entire show. So, um, yeah. how, how was your time on the show? And you know, like you said, you go to cons and people talk about you know how much they loved you and how much they loved the show. Uh, how was your time on the show? And like, how do you react when people tell you that? Man, well, the time on the show was great. Um, you know, a lot of hours, you know, 14 to 16 hours a day, you know, six days a week and then doing voiceovers and stuff like that. But I had an amazing time. Uh, and one other thing through my martial arts training, martial arts is beautiful to watch, even no matter who, if you do it right, you're going to watch it. It's mainstream, no matter who, who it is, they're going to, they're going to watch it. So I had to, I owned two schools before and I was, a, I was a pretty much hero in my own karate schools as Sensei Jason. So, you know, people that would, you know, uh, I was their teacher at the time. So I had this, this love of martial arts. And I really think that I was thinking, oh man, if I can just reach millions of kids around the world through the television, through my martial arts training, they knew I was real. They knew I was legit. 
and uh, it was just it was fun to see that transformation of me now reaching millions of kids, top top show in the world, kid show in the world, reaching millions of kids. So, you know, of course, being evil was great, and then you know the redemption <laughs> side of becoming good and. You know, showing kids, hey, man, no matter what you do, you can always become a better person and join the good side. And um, and another thing, I had the girlfriend, you know, every boy around the world, you know, wanted to, to have Kimberly as their first crush. Every girl around the world, I was, their, I was her first crush. So what we did is we kind of, like I say, scarred the hearts of the little kids, you know. Uh, <laughs> and now that they're all growing up, man, they're like, oh, you were my first crush, even with husbands there and you know, it's all that stuff. So it's it brings you back to being a child again. And just hearing the fans now embrace who I am as JDS and the man behind the mask, it's, it's uh, overwhelming, but it's exciting. Coming in at number three, this was another dream interview for me because she was involved with my all-time favorite TV show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? And this was one of those interviews that I just randomly decided to try and figured, you know, Worst case scenario, they won't respond. But thankfully, she responded, and this is one of my personal favorites. Coming in at number three from episode 123, Laura Hall from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Sitting here with my very special guest this week, you may know her as the one behind all the musical talents of the hit improv show Whose Line Is It Anyway? Miss Laura Hall. Laura, how are you? And thank you very much for joining us on the show. I'm doing great, and thank you for having me, Derek. Being an improv musician, so say if you're doing music for like an improv act, is the music improv as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, and you know, in a live improv show, the musician does a lot more than what we do on Whose Line Is It Anyway, right? Because the musician plays transitions between games, right? On Whose Line, it's all the way it's, cut for TV, we don't play, you know, Linda and I aren't playing transitions into the next scene, but in a live show, you're playing transitions, you're helping scenes wrap up by playing music out, you play underscore more, so the musician is much more present in a in a live improv show than, than on Whose Line. Transitioning to Whose Line, uh, how has your experience been doing that show, because have you been with Whose Line since the beginning? Since the beginning of the American ones, right? right? Because, you know, it was a British show first for a couple of years, right? And then when they brought it to the States, they brought the British host, Clive Anderson, over. Mm -hmm. And we did these little hybrid shows. We did six of them with the American cast and me, but Clive at the desk. Right. And they used those kind of as the test market ones, right, to see if American audiences – would like it and and they liked it with Clive and obviously they loved it with Drew you know what I mean which I think was the thinking like if they like Clive they'll adore Drew because you know he's sort of the all-american guy you know how has your time been doing the show oh it's it's been the most fantastic thing in my life in my career you know and um I loved it when we worked on ABC and then we had all that time off and I focused more again on some other things. And now we're back on the CW and I love it again. They're great people to work with. The taping of the, the tapings go really fast. So we don't, you know, it's not like we're working year round by any stretch of the imagination. You know, we, 
we work last year we we did we had 10 tape days which translates into about 25 days of work and that's the whole year <laughs> I've I've always wondered how the recording process of that show works Yeah so the way we do it is we play a whole bunch of games sometimes as many as like 25 or 28 and while we're playing them they're thinking about how they're going to cut and mix them together in to make the shows right because mm-hmm. you know you you can't have all guessing games in one show for example right you want to have a mixed you know or you can't have all the kind of one liner games like um, like scenes from a hat in one show so we're playing all these games and they're thinking oh we could take this greatest hits and put it with this you know what i mean so we're tape and tape and tape. We always get at least two shows out of it. Fairly often we get three, and on a few occasions we've gotten four out of one night of taping. So it really is a, first of all, it's a super cost-effective way to do a show. Oh, absolutely. But it also, the, like the energy of it, you just kind of, it's like you get rolling and we're just rolling, you know. And And then, so while we're doing it, you know, we're just playing the games, but the producers are thinking as we go about how they're going to put it together. And then at the end, we go back and we do some more show intros, right? Because we need a new intro if we're going to get two or three episodes out of it. And then different transitions, too, because it may be that we recorded, you know, uh, party quirks going into newscasters, but they're not going to be next to each other in the television show. So then we do all these intros over again. Uh, and that's our tape day. It's a really long day. From the time we get on stage till the time we're done is about five hours. Wow. Yeah. And the audience is there for like seven or eight. And, and some of them get in line. So they've been there since like 10 in the morning and we don't finish it till 1030 at night. They're like the best audiences ever that they have that much energy and enthusiasm for that long, you know. At number two, this is the longest podcast that I've ever done. So long that it had to be split into two parts. But it's one of my favorites because it was just nothing but talking about my favorite movie franchise of all time, Star Wars. Uh, Funny story about this podcast I didn't know how long it was going to go. I knew it was going to go at least two hours. We started around 7 or 7.30 that night, and it went so long that we had to take uh, a a dinner break, and we actually ordered Pizza Hut. And it's kind of an infamous clip uh, from those who were in the inner circle because that was what I used as the cutoff point for parts one and two because we can see through the apartment window that the pizza delivery guy's there, So we stop recording, eat, and then we resume. And we didn't finish until after midnight. And I remember my neighbors were not too pleased with me, but it's one of my favorites. And what's funny is that after we finished recording, we thought of like four or five more things that we could have talked about. So coming in at number two from episodes 126 and 127, The Star Wars Roundtable. Anyway, we are here to discuss Star Wars, the greatest franchise in Western civilization. All right. We're gonna... 
<laughs> Let's take it easy, Dan. Bond can what suck. What is it, it, Arizona Cardinals? Is that what you're saying? Bond can suck. <laughs> that is a discussion for another podcast, sir. We should have that debate one day. What is better, Star Wars or James Bond or Interstellar? What? Hey, did hey did any, oh, did any of the Star oh Wars you just became my favorite employee? <laughs> I'm not your employee. <laughs> Did any of the Star Wars characters ever dress up like a clown with balloons? Just ask you. Jar Jar. That was... Well, hey. 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 Right. Oh, no. Well, better. No, better. Amidala. Oh, yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little lipstick thing. Yeah, yeah, but she was hot. That is Th- true. Th- those are the balloons. All right, Derek. You can, you can get us back on track. I'm sorry. It's all good. So I want to start... We'll start with Mr. Bill here. What is your first memory of Star Wars? Return of the Jedi, and I was maybe four or five years old, and I remember then you always had stuff, not so much on actual VHS, but you had stuff on um, like recorded VHS, and I always remember never being able to find the one with the green lightsaber. That's all I wanted. I want to watch the one with the green lightsaber, and I could never find it, and every time I did, it was this awesome special thing. So Return of the Jedi is my earliest memory of Star Wars. Mr. Waldron? Uh, earliest memory of Star Wars would have to be watching them. Um, I think uh, my neighbor, my best friend, had um, the, you know, you, you remember the old VHS combo packs that would have like the three movies mm-hmm. this big and, you know, each movie was in there? I had that. Yeah, I still, yeah. ha- I still yeah, have mine. That, that's, that's, that's what we used to watch as, um, as a kid. We would we, we put in the uh, New Hope, um, Empire, and uh, Return, and... You know, we just watch them back to back to back. But they, they I remember that distinctly they came in that three, like that three stack VHS combo. Was pack. it in like a big black box? With I think it, was, it had Yoda on yeah, one side and yeah, Vader on the yeah, other. I think Vader. I think all, yes. all, all three VHS it, it had gold on it. The thing. Yeah. Yoda was Return of the Jedi. Um, a stormtrooper was Empire, and then Vader was uh, Star Wars, and then the package cover was Vader. With like a Tie Fighter, yeah, right, and yeah. a and a either it was either the Falcon or um, an X Wing, but I think it was an X Wing. Yeah, so I remember watching those. <clears throat> For me, like my brother is twelve years older than me, so I grew up like my first toys were Star Wars. I remember the little gold guy being like just one of my regular toys, not even knowing what it was. So I do remember, just like you, the recorded VHS and like. When somebody would accidentally record over it, we'd have to like wait till it was on TV again and <laughs> get it just right. And I remember like we had like four copies of Return of the Jedi, and we were missing the the like opening crawl and like three of them. The most the <laughs> most important thing about that trilogy that we're all talking about the box set. Until recently, I think they did come out with a Blu-ray DVD release, but it was the last time that it was an uncut version. Yeah, without like special effects, mm-hmm. right? The, and- the updated quote-unquote updated versions. They it was the last time they were printed. They haven't put it on Blu-ray yet, but uh, that untouched version is supposed to be coming out next year, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. Han shot first, what? Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah. Even JJ says that. Yeah. That's Uptown? Um, I would probably say for me, it was definitely my brother was a little bit older than I was, so playing with the toys and stuff, I mean, he kind of got it into before I did. Um I, uh-oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Let's let, let's let Adam have a moment during me he even talking. Tried. I was he even res- tried to save I, it. I was respectful during his, but let's let's give him this moment here. That's right. Come on, Adam, get it out. 
Good call her. Apparently, Sorry. me calling Luke no. is an effing pansy. <laughs> no, so I mean, I was huge on the micro machines, not the tiny, tiny ones, but the ones you could actually Dude, fix the little I figures. Love micro and machines. my brother and I, we just went to town on those. Yeah. And then I remember we were big on those. And then the the new editions came to theater that that box set that came from where they had the special effects that ended up being really horrible looking. But um, so the toys definitely, but the micro machines, not the small tiny ones like the size of a quarter. I'm talking the ones where you could actually put the guys inside of it all yeah. day. All I, day. I remember those. All micro day. machines were awesome. I completely forgot about I micro machines. I oh, missed yeah. the uh, micro machines I, guy. I had the Death Star where you could like pop your finger on this certain thing and it would unfold to like the Death Star mm-hmm. and Tatooine and you could put all the figures in there. It was yeah. best Christmas present ever. I what about you, about Mr. That. Diamond? Uh, my first memory was watching the original trilogy at my uncle's house. This was I was probably five, six years old. He was a huge Star Wars fan. He actually introduced me to a lot of the things that I'm interested in today, like Nintendo, uh, Star Wars, WWE, all, all kinds of stuff. And I just remember watching them over and over and over again. And I remember the, the box set that we had had like a little five-minute documentary before each of the movies, yep. kind of describing mm-hmm. how like the process behind making each one. And to me, the process of how that movie was made is just as fascinating as the movie itself because George Lucas, as much crap as we give him now, he had to really fight Hollywood to make that, and no one believed in it. Even, he, even Alec Guinness, who he got to play Obi-Wan, said, I want nothing to do with this franchise. Well, and the bet between him and uh, Spielberg. So Spielberg still gets movies uh, money from Star Wars because he bet Lucas a cut of Star Wars if Star Wars was bigger than uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Spielberg was like, yeah, this movie's going to be way bigger than my movie Close Encounters. So if I'm right that it's bigger, I get a cut. And so he still make Spielberg has nothing to do with the movies, and he makes millions off of them because of a bet, because Lucas thought it was going to be crap. Coming in at number one, and to me, it couldn't be anything else. You know, I, I've loved all the guests that I've had on my show. I've loved all the roundtables. But when I talk about the podcast, there's one story that I tell above all others. And it's not so much the actual interview itself, but it's how the interview actually happened. I remember it clear as day. Myself and Adam and Ian are sitting at Ian's house. The Denver Broncos had just lost in the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. And somehow the subject of Jake Plummer came up, who used to play quarterback for the Broncos. And Ian was telling me that he had just started his own podcast called Snakes Takes. So I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And he said, you should try and get him on your show. And I'm thinking, there's absolutely no way that a former NFL quarterback will come on my show. But he said, well, how do you know unless you try it? So I thought, well, you made a good point. I found him on Twitter and followed him and wrote to him, not a direct message, because back then you had to be following each other in order to exchange DMs. I just said, hey, my name's Derek. You know, I host a podcast and I'd love to have you on on my show. Uh, if you're interested, I can send you some more information. So I put my phone down and didn't really think much of it. And about an hour later, I get a notification that says he followed me back and then wrote, I followed, send me some more info. And the three of us were just losing our mind. The fact that he actually responded to my message. So 
we exchanged messages back and forth, and I wanted to have him on uh, the weekend before the Super Bowl because I thought it would be a good tie-in. But we lost communication, and then about a week after that, he wrote me back saying, hey, sorry, I you know didn't have the chance to respond. You have been really busy, uh, but I still want to do your show. So we set up a time, and I was coming up on episode 50 at the time, so I thought that would be the perfect time to do it. So I said, well... You know, I can't remember the exact day we did it, but I said, well, you know, how about, you know, this day? And he said, yeah, just, you know, remind me the week of and I'll do it. And I'm actually, it's funny because my first episode happened in the same room. And that's where I also recorded this interview. And the unfortunate part was Adam and Ian were going to sit in on the interview, but the, with scheduling changes, they weren't able to do it. But I was able to get a couple of, you know, special messages from this guest. Uh, And you can probably guess it by now. But coming in at number one from episode 50, former NFL quarterback Jake the Snake Plummer. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience here with my very special guest this week, former NFL quarterback from the Arizona Cardinals and Denver Broncos, Jake the Snake Plummer. Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Derek. Thanks for having me on your uh, the experience, the Derek Diamond experience. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem, no problem. I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, first thing I wanted to ask you, why the nickname The Snake? That's kind of a, a childhood nickname, I guess. But, you know, my, my actual real name is not Jake. It's a nickname that I got in the third grade when there were five Jasons in the classroom that I moved into mid-year. So uh, I'd been called Jake. Uh, you know, by friends of the family and certain people around our family. Uh, so it stuck after the third grade. And then as time went on, started getting into sports. Uh, the nickname came about for many reasons. I was real skinny and kind of tall and pretty quick and and kind of wiry. And my brothers would call me the snake. And then my brother, uh can't remember which it was eric or brett my older brothers gave me kenny stabler's <clears throat> book that called the snake and mm-hmm. uh, if anybody out there hasn't read the book the snake you should read it and then your mouths would be all a gap and going holy smokes how would he survive in today's world of <laughs> cell phones you know stories i mean it was a great book and for an eighth grade kid it was eye-opening and Kind of like, wow, that's what the NFL's like. So that's where the snake came from. And then through sports, just being kind of quick and elusive and wiry and skinny and looking kind of like a snake, it stuck. So that's where it kind of began and, and where everybody started calling me the snake. Awesome. My my guess was either some kind of childhood hero or the pro wrestler. So there you, you know, go. I love we love the wrestling. There's funny on Wikipedia, there's it quotes uh, that someone wrote in there that my nickname comes from jake the snake roberts mm-hmm. but it doesn't it comes from kenny stabler and uh you know he was the oakland raiders qb great quarterback right. left-handed guys crazy lived life to the to the fullest and played that way too so yeah it was uh, a little bit of mis you know misinformation there that it actually is kenny stabler the snake right got it right part of it is i, I grew up watching wrestling so that was just kind of my assumption but yeah. know, that's that, that's cool that's really cool. You obviously played football. Did you play any other sports growing up? We played everything, Derek. I mean, it was, you know, football, uh, basketball, baseball, golf, tennis, handball, wiffle ball, paddle ball, 
you name it. So give pretty me much ball. anything with a ball. <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> I don't even. My brothers, they were awesome. They were very active sports fans too. Uh, both of them extremely athletic, uh, great hand-eye coordination, and and could run and throw and catch. And so we we were always making up games and give us a. a empty driveway, some chalk, and a little red bouncy ball, we'd come up with something unique and creative to challenge us and have fun and keep score and see who could win. Now, going to Denver, you went to the Broncos uh, through free agency. What, how was your time in Denver? It, it was great. You know, I think uh, the chance to come play here, it happened really. It was started to happen the end of my career there in Arizona my last year we played Denver the last game of the year up here in Denver oh, wow. at uh, Mile High at Invesco so yeah and I, I you know I was being coached by Jeep Chris the quarterback coach at the time who now is the OC for San Francisco the 49ers uh, a great coach great guy an awesome person and uh, so he, he gave me some reins the last couple games of the season there we had a little package where I I had no communication with the sideline. It was me calling plays, whatever I felt like calling. And I was having a blast, man. And so I, I remember leaving the field and, and the, the crowd was chanting, we want Jake, we want Jake. And that was pretty awesome to know that, you know, there was a team. I can imagine and, so. Yeah, an organization like Denver where I, I mean, I'd struggled in Arizona. We lost a lot of games, like I said, three and 13, two years in a row. Uh, that was rough. And uh you know, I think it was three and thirteen, and maybe it had been close to that, but it felt like three and thirteen. Um, but yeah, to get a chance to go to Denver, it was awesome. Uh, you know, Shanahan uh, had a, had an awesome system in place, and some great guys in the locker room, and I was able to come up here and add to that, and really had a, a four year run that, that kind of resurrected my career and gave me a chance to to win a lot of games. We had two thirteen and three seasons. Uh, here with the Broncos so that's a stark contrast to what I went through in Arizona and uh, we damn near made it to the Super Bowl we were game away we lost to the Steelers in the AFC championship game and you know for a little kid out of Boise Idaho whose dreams were to play in the big one the Super Bowl you know to get that close was pretty amazing and uh, Mm -hmm. how the how my career ended here wasn't wasn't how I envisioned it or I don't think people like to see but that's just how sports goes and I was ready to retire after 10 and then kind of ready after nine. Had we won the Super Bowl, I wanted to leave that big stage with the MVP trophy and retire that on the spot. Uh, that was what my, my uh, grand scheme, grand plan was, but that didn't happen. So I played one more year and, and it was fun. It was a good, a good experience for me. And it, it kind of solidified uh, the notion that I was ready to get, get out of the game. Fun stuff. Hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, that little trip down memory lane as much as I did. It's, it was really cool to see, you know, the progression of the show from where it started to what it has become. You know, starting out as strictly interview-based, um, then adding in the roundtable element, then adding in the Facebook Live element to it. Uh, it it's been kind of cool to watch the, the evolution of this thing that I thought would ultimately be just me talking with friends about random stuff, so... You know, the fact that I've gotten to talk to people like Jake Plummer, like Claudia Wells, Jason David Frank, Laura Hall, and so many others has been a really, really great blessing. And it's something that I never thought I would get to do. And, you know, I have you, the listeners, to thank for it, because if you guys didn't keep listening, I probably wouldn't do it anymore. But that being said, uh, next week, 
uh, is episode 200, which will be the roast of Derek Diamond. Um, it's going to be recorded both video and audio. The audio version will be released at its normal time. I'm going to try to shoot for the video version to be released during that same time as well. Um, and that being said, after the roast, um, I'm going to release a little mini episode uh, discussing the future of this podcast because I will say next week's show will be the end of the Derek Diamond experience as you know it. It's not going away, but there are going to be some changes to the show. But I will be explaining that in a future mini episode. But until then, check out past episodes of the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify. Uh, just search for the Derek Diamond Experience. If you guys could leave me a review, I'd very much appreciate it. It helps me become more visible to the podcasting public. If you want to follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. But hopefully you guys enjoyed this little trip down memory lane as much as I did. It was really fun going back and listening to some of those clips. Enjoy the rest of your week. If you're coming to the roast, can't wait to see you. Uh, hopefully I'll still have friends by the end of the roast. But no, in all seriousness, it's all in good fun. Um, enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to every episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday with the roast of yours truly. Truly.